Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I'll be joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for the Session Shakedown segment. Lauren speaks with Representative Christy Morris for our deep dive conversation about the expanded bottle bill. And later, I'll speak with Representative Amy Sheldon about Vermonters' love-hate relationship with Act 250. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecards, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl for our session shakedown segment, where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. All right, Lauren, can you believe that we are a third of the way through the session already? It's moving quickly. It is. Yeah, the Affordable Heat Act is seemingly having a, a, a rougher time, I guess you could say, kind of like our winter this year. Uh, what's the latest and in, in what can folks do to help garner support for this crucial legislation? Yeah, the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee is continuing to really work through the details of what would be a first in the nation type of program. So, you know, it's it's complicated and trying to wean our heating sector off of fossil fuels, which we've depended on for many years, is unsurprisingly, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing to do. And so getting those details right is really where the Senate is. And meanwhile, we're seeing a lot of um, opposition coming in from the fossil fuel industry and their allies and really trying to kind of gin up fear of what will happen when we try to get off of fossil fuels. And so, you know, we're really trying to make sure that we're keeping an eye on the great benefits that will accrue as Vermonters get off of fossil fuels, which are, of course, polluting and expensive and volatile and get into better solutions that are more predictable and cleaner and healthier and make our homes more comfortable. So um, trying to figure out how to do that transition in a way that brings everyone along and particularly how our lower and moderate income Vermonters um, part of that solution. That's really where the conversation is focused appropriately right now. Yeah. So, so what can folks, what can folks do? What can listeners do to, to help out the situation outside of the, the state house? Yeah, right now, I think it'd be really important for people to take a moment to reach out to their Senator and let them know Senator or senators um, and let them know that they are um, supportive of acting on climate, that they're supportive on um, an affordable heat act that will help all Vermonters transition to cleaner and more affordable heating solutions. Um, so just taking that time to, to make that contact would be hugely helpful right now. Awesome. 
Uh, switching gears uh, for the Climate Dispatch video f- that came out last week, you uh, spoke with some advocates to outline the Transportation Affordability Act. What were the key takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, we heard from Katie Gallagher of the Vermont Natural Resources Council, who was talking uh, a lot about the details of how the Transportation Affordability Act will put forward a range of solutions that are really looking at both, you know, we know we need to electrify um, our cars and vehicles, but also looking at things like our complete streets program, which is how do we have a street system that supports people who um, do want to and can walk places and bike places and roll out more electric bicycles um, and things like that. So it's really looking, uh, you know, we can, we had part of this conversation last week with representative Molly Burke and uh, Katie dug in a little further on some of what the exciting provisions in the transportation affordability act uh, are that are going to help us have a uh, more accessible and affordable transportation system. Yeah. And I do believe there's a lobby day for those in the state house uh, for Transportation for Vermonters on February 22nd, I believe, in the morning. (laughs) Yes. Come have coffee with legislators that morning of the 22nd and chat with them about why clean transportation matters. Awesome. And as always, you can watch the full video of that conversation on our website. Uh, lastly, Lauren, what are where are we at with other policies that we care deeply about? The There's PFAS legislation, 30 by 30, housing. A lot continues to happen. So mm-hmm. for the PFAS legislation, so far, the Senate Health and Welfare Committee has done a walkthrough of the bill, which means that they've walked through the details of what the bill would actually do. And we're hoping that soon the committee will start taking testimony and mark up and get that bill moving. Um, The House Environment and Energy Committee is actively working on the 30 by 30 bill, which we've talked about before, uh, setting a target of conserving 30% of Vermont lands by 2030 and developing a plan to get there. That looks on track for hopefully moving forward um, this week or next week, sometime in the next couple of weeks. So that's exciting. Um, There's also testimony happening this week on the uh, the bottle bill, which uh, will look at expanding that program. And I talk with Representative Christy Morris uh, in a few minutes about uh, what that program is and why these modernization steps are important. And also the Senate Economic Development Housing and General Affairs Committee is continuing to work through really comprehensive legislation to expand housing in the state um, and trying to do it in really smart growth and thoughtful ways so that we're encouraging development in the places that we want it and um, making sure that we can protect our natural resources at the same time. And so we're continuing to watch the progress of that bill and you know, advocate for striking that appropriate balance, uh, making sure that we're accomplishing both things simultaneously of moving forward quickly with housing uh, and doing it in smart and thoughtful ways. Awesome. And yeah, as you mentioned last Wednesday, you were able to snag Springfield representative Christy Morris in a very busy state house cafeteria to hear all about that expanded bottle bill, which has some fresh movement. Let's hear that interview now. 
I am happy to be here today with Representative Christy Morris of Springfield. And Representative Morris has served uh, previously on the Natural Resources Committee and this year is on the Environment and Energy Committee in the House. And Representative Morris has been a real leader on one of VCV's priority issues this year, the bottle bill. And so I just wanted to start out uh, by giving our listeners a chance to understand. Could you just describe to us what is the bottle bill and why does it matter? Sure. So the bottle bill we currently have in place, people should be familiar with, and that is the, uh, the beer containers, the soft drink containers, and uh, that have a five cent deposit on them. And the effort there is to keep the materials out of the landfill and to keep them off the side of the roads that people seem to distribute and uh, just, just to uh, take better advantage of the recycled material. So people should be familiar, are quite familiar with the current redemption, redemption system. Absolutely. Uh, so this, this bottle bill just is proposing to expand beyond that. It include uh, your uh, clear plastic water bottles uh -huh. and some juice containers and also the uh, wine bottles, the glass for the wine bottles. Yep. And again, this is important because it further keeps additional materials out of the landfill and gets them into a recycled uh, system where they can be melted down again or reused into other containers, such as the wine bottles could yeah. be refilled if they were clean. Uh -huh. uh, currently, the current system without a deposit, they're going uh, either into a zero sort or a single, yeah. single stream system and uh, don't necessarily uh, get returned as clean product. There is some contamination in that sorting system. So this is a way to get those materials back into the recycling system. Great. So it sounds like we can truly recycle instead of having more contaminated that might end up in the landfill or some of that can be used for like one-time uses sometimes like roadbed or things like that. Correct. So so in this way, we can keep making new bottles and cans if we are using the bottle bill. That is great. And so can you describe, so... Uh, last year, your committee and the House passed uh, an updated bottle bill, went over to the Senate, and actually you passed it two years ago. The Senate last year passed it, uh, but then it stalled out before it got all the way through every step of the process. Uh, so where is the bill now, and what do you see for next steps? Correct. So you're exactly right with last year's bill. It got to the Senate. The Senate took it up. They made some amendments, and they voted to pass it but it was right at the last week of or the end of the session. Right. And so they did not get it back over to us in time with all the other priorities so that we could vote it out of the house with their amendments and then get it to the governor's desk gotcha. for a potential signature. Yep. Exactly right. <laughs> so that bill was resurrected this year as H-158. And the goal is to get it passed early in the session in the house, get it over to the Senate. And if it's, uh, Similar to the Senate language of last year, it's, there's a couple of minor modifications, but it's similar that we're hoping that it will get passed through the Senate as well. Great. Are there any uh, big obstacles that you see, or does it seem like there's a oh, lot sure. of optimism? <laughs> like every good bill. There's <laughs> every good bill has, has, has a, its challenges. Has its challenges and oppositions, uh, certainly. So the current redemption system we have now for uh, cans and bottles yeah. It is work has been working well for 23 years, um, in, in the, or longer than that, since the 70s, actually. I'm sorry, since, since 1973. Well, yeah. And uh, so it's been working well. 
the issue with adding more containers into that system is that redemption centers or your smaller convenience stores that take bottles and cans back are now going to be required to take back other containers. But we're putting the um, emphasis back onto the uh, extended producer responsibility, mm -hmm. APR program, to have them set up additional recycle centers or redemption centers okay. so that uh, it won't tack overburden the uh, current system. Uh, right. We expect that the additional materials, uh, at least for pickup, uh, timing, and uh, storage until they're picked up, is, is going to be an introductory obstacle. But uh, certainly this bill proposes that the the responsibility goes back to the producer or the manufacturer of the products and that they'll uh, address those concerns and make appropriate adjustments. Great. Well, really appreciate your time describing to us uh, what the bill does, what the updates will do, and why it matters. And we'll check back with you um, as we go through the process. But sounding uh, pretty optimistic that you all will move this and put this good it, policy. Hopefully I, we can get it through this year. <laughs> I, I appreciate the time and it's also important to know Vermonters, they need to become educated in the idea that the Coventry landfill is our one and only. There right. are no plans to add another landfill someplace else and there's uh, opposition to expanding right. the current one. Right. So it has a life, a shelf life that's going to expire in 20 years is the estimate yep. and or before. And we need to take more and more material out of that because the alternative is we load them on a truck and ship them out of state to go someplace else, which again is adding a burden and a cost back to the consumer. Gotcha, yes. So finding better ways to recycle and recycle more is gonna be critical. Excellent, well, thank you so much for your time and have a great rest of your day. Pleasure, have a good weekend. The late 1960s brought sudden and dramatic change to Vermont's quiet countryside. In population and developed areas, the state had hardly grown since the start of the 20th century. Now, almost all at once, new permanent and part-time residents began flooding in. The opening during the 60s of the interstate highway system in Vermont brought the state at least an hour closer in driving time for residents of the Boston and New York City areas. At about the same time, IBM began creating a major facility in Essex Junction. Vermont was promoting tourism, and the southern Vermont towns of Wilmington and Dover, among others, had become very popular skiing destinations. Towns were suddenly faced with the prospect of hundreds of new second homes and condominiums, often built on sensitive mountainsides. Governor Davis, a retired business executive and Vermont native, was deeply concerned, but at that time, there was little he could do. Although Vermont had encouraged local planning during the 60s, it had virtually no environmental regulations or land use controls. Governor Davis responded by creating the Governor's Commission on Environmental Control, chaired by State Representative Arthur Gibb on May 18, 1969. After holding well-attended hearings throughout the state, in January of 1970, the Gibb Commission recommended a number of environmental laws, chief among them a new state system for reviewing and controlling plans for large-scale and environmentally sensitive development. Governor Davis insisted that the system not be centered in Montpelier, that the power to review projects and grant permits be vested more locally in a group of regional commissions. 
In spring of 1970, the Vermont legislature passed the Land Use and Development Law, since known simply as Act 250. It created nine district environmental commissions whose members were, and still are, laypersons, not government officials. Their decision-making process, supported by a modest staff, would center on 10 criteria for reviewing development and subdivision plans that would involve significant environmental, aesthetic, and or community impacts. This review of development by local Vermont citizens has, with the 10 criteria, been the center of the Act 250 process ever since. Because of the Act 250 process, the quality of development in Vermont is generally higher than in states without comprehensive land use laws. Act 250 was designed to achieve a balance between economic development and the legitimate interests of citizens, municipalities, and state agencies in protecting the environment. Innovative and bold at its inception, Act 250 is now part of the fabric of Vermont. Here to join me for a conversation about Act 250 and, in the spirit of Valentine's Day, Vermont's love-hate relationship with the legislation, is Representative Amy Sheldon. Representative Sheldon of Middlebury is a consulting natural resource planner at Landslide Natural Resource Planning, a senior faculty member at the National Outdoor Leadership School, and serves on the Middlebury Conservation Commission. Amy served on the Middlebury Planning Commission for 10 years, on the District 9 Environmental Board for Act 250, and on the board of the Middlebury Area Land Trust before being elected to the Vermont House in 2014. She has served on the Fish, Wildlife, and Water Committee, the Agriculture and Forestry Committee, the Commerce and Economic Development Committee, and now chairs the Environment and Energy Committee. In 2017, Rep. Sheldon was appointed as chair of the Commission on Act 250. The commission was a six-member legislative committee created to examine and report on a broad list of issues relating to Act 250, setting it up for the next 50 years. They also have the distinction of being our first returning guest on the podcast. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. So Act 250 is often brought up in very serious conversations surrounding development and land use in Vermont, but for the sake of this conversation, I'm framing it as Vermont has a love-hate relationship with Act 250, and if we were in a relationship, we might say it's complicated. So are we on? Are we off? Representative Sheldon, after 53 years, is it safe to say that the honeymoon period is over? It is safe to say that the honeymoon period is over. Act 250, um, it's interesting framing, a love-hate relationship. Yeah, I think that that's not maybe too far off. I mean, Vermonters, um, when we need it, we love it. (laughs) And when it's perceived to be in our way, we have a struggle with it. Um, But for better or worse, I think most of us agree that Act 250, in large part, is responsible for the beautiful Vermont that we know and love today. So generally, I think the scales tip towards love. All right. Well, I'm going to have you argue both sides. Um, And I'm going to use the, for the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to ask you to speak on behalf of all Vermonters, although I do realize this may not be how you personally feel um, and certainly not how all Vermonters feel. But first thing I'm going to have you ask, uh, have you outline is why do Vermonters love Act 250? I think Vermonters love Act 250. Um, Vermonters who are less familiar with Act 250 um, probably love it because it's a backstop um, 
for a lot of our communities who rely on it for actual local development review. So in Vermont, we have, I think, 100 communities that um, rely on it for their, for their development review. We have a lot of small towns that don't have the capacity to stand up um, planning and zoning, which is required in order to um, have a higher threshold for triggering Act 250. So those communities really, they, they need it. Um, I also think it's important, there's a great example a few years ago when um, there was a, a person proposing very large scale developments uh, in the Upper Valley and, um, you know, to the tune of creating 20,000 person communities in a very short amount of time. And I think that knowing that we had Act 250, if, if those proposals had gone forward, they would have needed to go through Act 250 review and that would have provided the ability for communities to have a say in very large scale development. And that's really the intention of Act 250's original founding. Yeah, and on the flip side of that coin though, what what would you say Vermonters hate about Act 250? Um, I think it's, it's hard to say that Vermonters generally hate Act 250. I think that there are people who individually have had bad experiences where the process hasn't gone as it should have gone, which is not to say every development should be approved, but we know the vast majority of developments are approved. Um, but sometimes there can be a process issue that comes up um, where you know a single individual can hold up a development for a very long time, even though um, the town plan supports it and there are other indications that it's um, a development that should happen. So I think that's what gets the press attention and then that's what brings people into being like, wow, maybe this isn't, isn't working as it should be. Yeah, so it's certainly complicated. Um, and, and as the chair during several Act 250 related policies, um, I'm sure you've heard arguments for and against. Um, can you name a specific incident um, or proposal that Act 250's role was particularly challenging in? Well, I alluded to it in my previous answer, but I do think there have been a couple of instances where appeals are hap have happened in places where uh, towns actually did have good planning and zoning, and it was clear that the developments were allowed in those places and kind of a disgruntled neighbor was able to slow the process down. Um, other instances are not coming into my mind right now. I think sometimes um, one of the big things we've learned is that the over time the legislature has sort of dis... Um, disempowered the Natural Resources Board and their role of oversight and administration of district commissions. And so sometimes the district commissions can um, run um, kind of off the rails a little bit and they need to be brought in. And one of the big updates we're hoping to accomplish is to re-empower the board to have stronger oversight of district commissions. So there's more consistency, as people like to talk about. Yeah, I, I heard at the beginning of the biennium you know, which was only um, six weeks ago at this point, but that, you know, no one's going to wants to touch Act 250 this year. Um, but I still hear it often discussed in, in almost every piece of policy. Um, what are some of the current policies in your committee where Act 250 is being addressed? And, and are there actively conversations about making more changes to it? Um, we are currently not taking up a specific changes to Act 250 before crossover, but 
we do talk about and will be pursuing uh, um, an extension of Section 248, which relies on the Act 250 criteria. So if you've heard it mentioned in our committee um, already, that it's probably related to that because it is the same review um, criteria, but through a different board, the Public Utility Commission. Um, and then I think the housing bill currently in the Senate has some proposed changes to Act 250, and we'll be getting that after crossover. So we'll be looking at those proposals um, but still through the holistic lens of everything that we've learned through the things you've already mentioned, the, the um, Act 250 commission that I participated in in 2017, you said, 2018, I think, um, and uh, the previous two attempts to do a larger scale holistic update of Act 250 that we have. And we will be looking, um, I'll be introducing that bill soon, of the bigger picture changes that we the House passed last year. Okay, yeah, and so that kind of gets me to my next question, which was, is that Act 250 is seen in some some ways as being like held under glass for the last 53 years. And there have obviously been some small tweaks and some changes, um, nicks and cuts eroding at it. But do you think it is time for a more widespread reconfiguring of the, of, of the bill? Um, I sure do. And I think that that's why I've put so much energy into it. Um, originally, as originally conceived, Act 250 was um, intended to be reliant upon mapping, and that that piece of the um, regulatory process was never implemented, and that created a kind of a setback from the start, if you will. Today, we have much better mapping, and we should be utilizing that um, as we and we are, but it would be good to be using it consistently across the state. Um, more importantly, Act 250 was started before we were aware of the impacts of climate change, and certainly before we were um, in the biodiversity crisis that we're in today. And so those are two significant substantive changes that need to happen or sort of topic-based changes that need to be addressed in an update. Uh, additionally, I would say that the structural changes to the board, um, maybe we've been, um, how did you say it, nixing cuts or nickel and dimed over time, but the, the big change really was the change in the appeals process and the disempowering of the Natural Resources Board. Um, and that really, they need to be re-engaged in the process somehow. They've been removed from actually kind of utilizing the law and practicing it. And then therefore, um, and the and also, they don't necessarily have direct oversight over the commissions and we need to straighten out those. That's what those sort of four big things that we need to straighten out. So uh, what do you see as the future for Act 250? I mean, obviously, you, you've you just outlined some plans for reconfiguring it and updating it. Do you think that it's something that we will, you know, within our lifetimes still have in Vermont? Is it, it's not going anywhere, do you foresee? Or um, is it something that would be potentially scrapped altogether and, and something replaces it altogether? We're nowhere near um, a place where we could replace it altogether. Like I started out the conversation noting many towns rely on Act 250, even for what other larger towns might consider small development review. So until, you know, the, the future of, of Act 250 for me is strong. We also are acutely aware of the need for the conservation of what I call statewide resources. And I think you need a statewide entity watching out for statewide resources. Um, but until we identify those resources and find a way to make sure they are protected for future generations, as well as standing up much more robust local planning. Um, I think the future for Act 250 is 
most necessary and quite strong. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today to chat with me about being a, a champion for environmental and climate related policies, including Act 250. And I appreciate you being on the podcast again. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for your work, Justin. Materials and information for this interview was compiled from the Natural Resources Board on the state's website. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. 98%. That is the approval rate of Act 250 applications by district commissions, the focal point of the Act 250 process. While the number of applications in the early years of the law were modest, the district commissions today receive approximately 450 applications per year, and they approve more than 98% of them. Many plans are modified during the application process, and district commissions generally attach conditions to land use permits to make sure that the Act 250 criteria are satisfied. I want to thank our guests, Representatives Amy Sheldon and Christy Morris, as well as Lauren Hurl, for assisting me. We will be back next Monday for the next episode of the Democracy Dispatch. I'll be chatting with Senator Becca White for an update on ranked choice voting and the Affordable Heat Act, as well as having a conversation with Representative Sadia Lamont about her experience as a Black woman in the legislature. Until next time, thanks for listening.